This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to, well, just about anything. And we do eulogies, we do stories of songs, and every once in a while, we just go right back to some of the American classics and some of the great literature of the past, stuff that, well, schools just aren't paying attention to anymore, but we're a part of our heritage for so long. And one of those writers is the American poet Walt Whitman. And his poem here that we're about to play, a recording of it, a terrific recording of it, is Pioneers, O Pioneers. And it was first published in 1865. The poem was written as a tribute to Whitman's fervor for the great westward expansion in the United States that led to the California gold rush and exploration of the Far West. And by the way, we've spent a lot of time on the subject with our Lewis and Clark stories, the most epic road trip ever. But right now, here's Walt Whitman's poem as read by Will Gear with accompaniment by Ennio Marconi's Ecstasy of Gold. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Come, my tan-faced children. Follow well in order. Get your weapons ready. Have you your pistols? Have you your sharp-edged axes, pioneers, oh pioneers? For we cannot tarry here. We must march, my darlings. We must bear the brunt of danger. We, the youthful, sinewy races, all the rest on us depend. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Oh, you youths, western youths, so impatient, full of action, full of manly pride and friendship. Plain I see you, western youths, see you tramping with the foremost. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Have the elder races halted? Do they droop and end their lesson, wearied over there beyond the seas? We take up the task eternal, and the burden and the lesson. Pioneers, oh pioneers. All the past we leave behind. We debouch upon a newer, mightier world, varied world. Fresh and strong the world we seize, world of labor and the march. Pioneers, oh pioneers. We detachment steady throwing, down the edges, through the passes, up the mountain steep, conquering, holding, daring, venturing as we go the unknown ways. Pioneers, oh pioneers. We primeval forests felling, we the rivers stemming, vexing we and piercing deep the mines within. We the surface broad surveying, we the virgin soil upheaving. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Colorado men are we, from the peaks gigantic, from the great Sierras and the mighty plateaus, from the mine and from the gully, from the hunting trail we come, pioneers, oh pioneers. From Nebraska, from Arkansas, central inland race are we. From Missouri, with the continental blood intervened, all the hands of comrades clasping, all the southern, all the northern pioneers, oh pioneers. Oh resistless, restless race, oh beloved race in all, Oh, my breast aches with tender love for all. Oh, I mourn and yet exult. I am wrapped with love for all. Pioneers, oh, pioneers. Raise the mighty mother mistress, waving high the delicate mistress, over all the starry mistress. Bend your heads all. Raise the fanged and warlike mistress, stern, impassive, weaponed mistress. Pioneers, oh, pioneers. See my children, resolute children, by those swarms upon our rear, we must never yield or falter. Ages back in ghostly millions frowning there, behind us urging. Pioneers, 
of pioneers. On and on the compact ranks, with accessions ever waiting, with the places of the dead quickly filled, through the battle, through defeat, moving yet and never stopping, pioneers, oh pioneers, oh to die advancing on. Are there some of us to droop and die? Has the hour come? Then upon the march we fittest die. Soon and sure the gap is filled. Pioneers, oh pioneers. All the pulses of the world falling in, they beat for us with the Western movement beat, holding single or together, steady moving to the front. All for us, pioneers, oh pioneers. Life's involved in varied pageants, all the forms and shows, all the workmen at their work, all the seamen and the landsmen, all the masters with their slaves, pioneers, oh pioneers. All the hapless silent lovers, all the prisoners in the prisons, all the righteous and the wicked, all the joyous, all the sorrowing, all the living, all the dying, pioneers, oh pioneers. I too, with my soul and body, we a curious trio, picking, wandering on our way, through these shores amid the shadows, with the apparitions pressing, pioneers, oh pioneers. Blow the darting bowling orb, blow the brother orbs around, all the clustering suns and planets, all the dazzling days, all the mystic nights with dreams, pioneers, oh pioneers. These are of us, they are with us, all for primal needed work, while the followers there in embryo wait behind. We today's procession heading, we the route for travel clearing. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Oh you daughters of the West, oh you young and elder daughters, oh you mothers and you wives, never must you be divided. In our ranks you move united. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Minstrels latent on the prairies, Shrouded bards of other lands, you may rest, you've done your work. Soon I hear you coming warbling, soon you rise and tramp amid us. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Not for delectation sweet, not the cushion and the slipper, not the peaceful and the studious, not the riches safe and parling, not for us the tame enjoyment. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Do the feasters gluttonous feast? Do the corpulent sleepers sleep? Have they locked and bolted doors? Still be ours the diet hard and the blanket on the ground, pioneers, oh pioneers. Has the night descended? Was the road of late so toilsome? Did we stop, discouraged, nodding on our way? Yet a passing hour I yield you in your tracks to pause oblivious, pioneers, oh pioneers. Till with sound of trumpet, Far, far off the daybreak calls. Hark, how loud and clear I hear it whine. Swift to the head of the army. Swift, spring to your places. Pioneers, oh pioneers. And there you have it, folks. It doesn't get better than that. This is Our American Stories.
this is Our American Stories. We're about to tell the story about the film It's a Wonderful Life. What is it about that movie that makes it so alluring? On the most basic level, it reminds us all that every person matters, that we can depend on the strength of family and friends, and that God hears our desperate cries. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of this Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life. In the closing scene of It's a Wonderful Life, newly commissioned first-class guardian angel Clarence Oddbody reminds George Bailey, no man is a failure who has friends. For countless families, including my own, George Bailey and the cast of It's a Wonderful Life have long been treasured holiday friends, reminding us of the power of friendship and the potential impact and worth of a single human life. It's a Wonderful Life is an illustration of the values and virtues we see illustrated in the Christmas story. Self-sacrifice, provision, faith, generosity, mercy, grace, joy, divine intervention, the meaning of life, and forgiveness. Like the joy of carefully opening a skillfully wrapped Christmas present, we are about to remove the wrapper from this film, discovering some of the precious anecdotes in virtually every scene. It's Christmas Eve. A desperate man certain that his entire life has been worth nothing stands on the brink of suicide. But God has better things in store for George Bailey. Dear Father in heaven, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope. I... Surprisingly, It's a Wonderful Life began as a Christmas card. In 1943, writer Philip Van Doren Stern wrote a short story he called The Greatest Gift. When Stern couldn't sell his story, he had 200 copies printed and enclosed them in his Christmas cards. Three months later, RKO Radio Studios bought The Greatest Gift for $10,000 intending to make a Christmas movie with Cary Grant. Three different scripts were commissioned for The Greatest Gift by noted writers Mark Connolly, Dalton Trumbo, and Clifford Odets. But none of them made the grade. So The Greatest Gift gathered dust on the shelf at RKO. That is until director Frank Capra discovered it. Capra read The Greatest Gift and saw its potential immediately. RKO, anxious to unload the troublesome project, sold The Greatest Gift to Capra for the same $10,000 they'd paid for it and threw in all three scripts for free. Frank Russell Capra was one of the most successful directors of the 1930s with classics, such as It Happened One Night, You Can't Take It With You, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. During World War II, Capra served in the U.S. Army Signal Corps and produced propaganda films such as the Why We Fight series. Born in Italy and raised in Los Angeles from the age of five, his rags-to-riches story has led film historians such as Ian Freer to consider him the American dream personified. Capra was very popular with audiences, but critics often mocked his optimistic, wholesome, sentimental, and uplifting films, calling them Capricorn, qualities that were rare even in the heydays of the 1930s and 40s. 
Capper didn't mind, though. He thought that making positive statements through his movies was very important. It's a Wonderful Life is a sentimental film, but it's also an honest one. It explores the pain of normal life as well as the joy. Here's Frank Capra. That's a great film. I love that film. It's my favorite film. And in a sense, it epitomizes everything I've been trying to do and trying to say in the other films, only it does it very dramatically with a, with a very unique story. The importance of the individual is the theme that, I'm, that it, it, it tells, and uh, that no man is a failure, and every man has a, something to do with his life. If he's born, he's born to do something. I suppose it would been better if I'd never been born at all. What did you say? I said I wish I'd never been born. Wait a minute, that's an idea. What do you think? And this idea is carried out in this unique plot, because a man who thought he was a failure and thought he'd be... Everybody around him would have been better off had he not been born. Was given the chance to see how the world around him would have been, his own small little world, would have been had he not been born. Your brother, Harry Bailey, broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? Although many of the film's roles would prove difficult to cast, Capra had only one George Bailey in mind, Jimmy Stewart, who had already starred in Capra's You Can't Take It With You in 1938 and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in 1939. Stewart, who became the first movie star to wear a military uniform, had just returned from the Second World War as a combat bomber pilot and was one of the few Americans to ever rise from private to colonel in only four years. Like most returning GIs, Stewart wondered what would happen next. My contract with MGM ran out during the war, and I just got a phone call one day. It was Frank Capra, and he said, I have an idea for a story. Why don't you come down, and, and I'll, uh, I'll tell, tell it to you. Well, I couldn't get down there quick enough, and I sat down. And he said, you're a uh, fellow in a small town. Mary, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow, and the next day, and next year, and a year after that. I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet, and I'm going to see the world. Yeah, then you get married, you have all these kids. Hello, Daddy. Hello, Daddy. And your father dies, and you have to take over the building Four, alone. Three, two, one, bingo! We made it, Commodore Eustace. We made it. Look, look, we're still in business. We've still got two bucks left. And uh, finally, you're going to kill yourself. You're going to jump off a bridge. And an angel by the name of Clarence, he comes down to help you, but uh, he can't swim. Well, you go down and uh, save the... He said, this, this really doesn't sound very good, does it? I said, Frank, if you, want, if you want me to be in a picture about a guy that wants to kill himself and an angel comes down named Clarence and he can't swim and I saved, I, I, when do we start? As a screen actor, they don't come much more likable than Jimmy Stewart. His characters on screen are honest, direct, and friendly. But Frank Capra saw a darker personality beneath Stewart's all-American charm. He knew that Stewart 
could not only own the lighter moments in the film, but that he could also be convincing as a man sinking into bitterness and despair. Here's Hollywood legend Carol Burnett. I think it's uh, one of the finest pieces of work of acting anyone has ever done on the screen. That moment at that bar, uh, it's indelible in my mind. He realizes that he has lost everything. The money is missing. It's Christmas Eve, and he sits there and starts to cry. He is so in tune with that character and with that writing that uh, he and George Bailey are one. Capra's genius in casting can be seen in how he populated Bedford Falls with the finest bunch of character actors in Hollywood. The role of George's Uncle Billy was considered for W.C. Fields, but was given to the first man to win an Oscar, an Emmy, and a Tony Award, Thomas Mitchell. No, maybe I better go home. Where's my hat? Where's my hat? Oh, oh thank you, George. This is mine, the metal one. Oh. For the evil Mr. Potter, Capra considered the master of chills, Vincent Price, but was inevitably played to nasty perfection by Lionel Barrymore, Drew Barrymore's great uncle. George, I am an old man. Most people hate me, but I don't like them either, so that makes it all even. For George Bailey's wife, Mary, Capra's instincts were accurate once again when he cast the relatively unknown MGM contract player, Donna Reed, the perfect mixture of wholesome sex appeal and homegrown American strength and virtue. What'd you wish, George? And what storytelling this is. When we come back, I know you're going to want to hear the rest of this story of the making of It's a Wonderful Life from some of the original people on the scene when it was made here on Our American Story. Turn to the story of the making of It's a Wonderful Life. And when we last left off, director Frank Capra was casting a young farm girl from Iowa named Donna Reed. What'd you wish, George? Well, not just one wish, a whole hat full. Here's an interesting bit of trivia. Frank Capra had hired someone to toss a rock at the window for Donna Reed in the old house scene. But as it turned out, she was a terrific baseball pitcher. Reed surprised Capra and the production crew with the power and accuracy of her toss, throwing the rock better than anyone else on the set. I'm going to build bridges a mile long. Well, you going to throw a rock? Hey, that's pretty good. What'd you wish, Mary? Donna Reed's sweetness and beauty make it obvious to us, if not to George, that staying in Bedford Falls is not a punishment 
but a pleasure. Welcome home, Mr. Bailey. If George was to have a wonderful life, to a great extent, it was his wife who made it so. Remember the night we broke through windows in this old house? This is what I wished for. These days, movies can say and show almost anything imaginable. But in 1946, the Motion Picture Association of America's production code eliminated the words impotent, dang, lousy, and jerk from Capra's script. In one case, Capra managed to sidestep the production code that stipulated that criminals had to be punished for their crimes. But when Mr. Potter steals Uncle Billy's misplaced building and loan $8,000 deposit, he never receives his penalty. Capra said that he received more mail about this point over the years than about anything else in the film. All right, George. Go ahead. Go ahead. You can't hide in a little town like this. The little town of Bedford Falls was in fact a set built on the RKO Ranch in Encino, California. A city that never sees snow, not even in the coldest days of winter, let alone during the record-breaking heatwave summer of filming in 1946. At the time, movie snow was usually made of cornflakes painted white. But the large crunch made it impossible to record dialogue. The special effects crew invented a new type of artificial snow using a wind machine and a special mixture of 6,000 gallons of fomite, sugar, soap, and water. One of the funniest scenes in the movie takes place at a high school gymnasium when a Charleston contest is suddenly interrupted when the floor of the gym slides open, revealing a swimming pool beneath it. I've got the key. Many critics jeered at this scene, calling it movie fakery at its worst. But it's real. And what is called the swim gym is in daily use to this very day at Beverly Hills High School. And if the jealous prankster who opens the gym floor over George Bailey looks familiar, it's because it's none other than Carl Schweitzer, otherwise known as Alfalfa from Our Gang or The Little Rascals. Frank Capra loved to take advantage of surprises on the set. During the scene where Uncle Billy has too much to drink and says goodbye to George, a technician off-screen accidentally knocked over a stack of props. It sounded like Uncle Billy had fallen into a whole stack of garbage cans. The production guy expected to be fired, but Capra gave him a $10 bonus for improving sound and characterization. Thank you, George. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Now, look, if you'll point me in the right direction, would you do that, George? Oh, old, old Bill in the lone pal. Now, you just turn this way. I'm not right straight down there. Well, oh, that way. My wild Irish rose. I'm all right. I'm all right. Oh, sweetest flower. In another sequence, Capra faced an unexpected snag when Jimmy Stewart became extremely reluctant to kiss Donna Reed in the now famous telephone scene. He kept asking Capra to delay the scene, arguing that he had been away from the cameras too long for such a hot and heavy scene. 
A fella gets rusty, he said. Capper insisted they shoot the scene. And just to make sure Stewart didn't back out, he restaged it so that Jimmy Stewart and Reed had to share the phone. The scene was shot in one take and is arguably the greatest kiss in movie-making history. George, George, George. Everyone has a favorite part in It's a Wonderful Life, including Jimmy Stewart himself. Here he is on a walk and talk with Johnny Carson. Of all the great scenes in that picture, what was your favorite? Well, I think it was the scene with the angel Clarence yeah. when we were in that uh, little house, but when we'd just been in the water. The bridge tender. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, Clarence told me that he was an angel that uh, hadn't won his wings yet. I, I love that. Hey, what's, what's with you? What did what, what, you say just a minute ago? Why'd you want to save me? That's what I was sent down for. I'm your guardian angel. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Ridiculous of you to think of killing yourself for money. Eight thousand dollars. Yeah, now, think, just things like that. How do you know that? I told you I'm your guardian angel. I know everything about you. Well, you look about like the kind of an angel I'd get. Sort of a fallen angel, aren't you? What happened to your wings? I haven't worn my wings yet. That's why I'm an angel second class. Uh, I don't know whether I like it very much being seen around an angel without any wing. This is one of the wonderful things about the picture, I think. The scene at the end of the picture, uh, this is after that's... It's a different place. Nobody knows me and everything. Right? But I just, uh, I stop for a minute and I say, God, I'm not a praying man, but please bring me back. Please bring me back. I, I want to live again. I want to live again. Please, God, let me live again. The film premiered in New York's Globe Theater on West 46th Street on December 20th, 1946 and failed to crack the top 25 grossing films for 1947. It was nominated for five Academy Awards, but didn't win a single gold statue. Within a few months, It's a Wonderful Life was out of sight and out of mind, where it would inevitably retire into obscurity. But future audiences would rediscover the film thanks to a legal loophole. In the early 1970s, copyright on the film expired and the movie company failed to renew it. Therefore, the film entered into the public domain. Television networks could play It's a Wonderful Life as often as they wanted without paying any royalties. Word of mouth began to spread, and more and more people began to fall in love with the picture. Bert, do you know me? It came from just little bits of thinking. Just, just remember, no man is born to be a failure. Just remember, no man is poor who has friends. It shows values that are really very close to an awful lot of us and are really very basic American values. Like George Bailey, we might wonder what the world might have been like without It's a Wonderful Life. But like George Bailey, the film was rescued from oblivion by its friends, making It's a Wonderful Life one of the greatest films of all time. Fellow Americans who love 
all the optimistic, wholesome, sentimental, and uplifting ingredients in Capricorn. It is a wonderful life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always. And go to Our American Network to hear all of our art stories and all of our movie stories. Frank Capra's story, It's a Wonderful Life story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Stupid Cupid, the hit song from the highest-selling female recording artist in human history, and we're talking about Connie Francis, who sold over 200 million record sales, 200 million in her name, and we're fortunate that she joins us now. Thanks for being with us, Connie. My pleasure, Lee. Connie, before we get to our interview, we want to surprise you with something, well, We featured our celebration of your life story, and one of our listeners wrote to us and said that he had a role to play in a part of your story, and we were so moved by it, Connie, that we asked him to record it, and we'd like to take a listen together. I very much enjoy your stories. I don't get to listen to all of them. You do a great job with the ones I do get to hear. One night I was listening and you were talking to Connie Francis. And I was taken back to that time, you see, because Connie visited my hospital when she toured Vietnam. Your story asked her about the important events in her life, and she talked about seeing different facilities out in the boondocks. She didn't want to stay with just where the generals told her to go and what to see, she wanted to get out and see what the war was really about. The base camp was in a province in a city called Tainin, northwest of Saigon, close to Cambodia. I was the chief clerk, so once Connie got to our facility, the officers, of course, greeted her and, you know, did all the PR things, and because I was the chief clerk, I had access to the guest book. When celebrities came around, we'd have them sign it. I got her started on tour, and if I remember right, we were not busy with any incoming that day, but we had lots of wounded in the 4th and 5th recovery Quonset hut. Of course, some were wounded more than others. And I distinctly remember that when she arrived to start her tour, she was all smiles and very, very gracious, glad to see us. When she exited the wounded units, she was very shook. The color of her face was ashen, and about the only place she looked was down. That reflects on what she said on your story. 
and I'll paraphrase. It was the most gratifying thing that I've done. After that trip, I changed and got a lot more serious. She says, I was against the war, but not against the troops. And I can speak for every Vietnam veteran when I say that we appreciated everything celebrities and entertainers did to keep our spirits up. We were reminded when we left what was back in the world, as we called it, to return to the USA. I'm sure she doesn't remember specifics, but I wonder if you could pass along the note from me, Gary Wagoner, Chief Clerk of the 45th Mobile Unit Self-Contained Transportable Hospital. I don't know, you know, whether we were the first hospital she visited or uh, whether or not she had already been to other field hospitals. But from what I remember, just the way she looked after she saw the wounded, uh, that seemed to me like it was quite a shock to her. So God bless you, Miss Francis. We appreciated your visit and the time you took away from your tour to, to entertain us. And what a story. And Kania, we were just sorry to spring that on you, but we didn't know how else to do it. And we'd love to hear your comment about that story because it's so beautiful. Um, that trip was the most eventful of my life. And I will never forget it. To me, every one of those guys was a hero. And I don't know how they withstood one year of that hellhole. Because it was, it was just death. Just, you could smell the death all over. Everywhere you went. And it distressed me a great deal when our troops returned from Vietnam. And they were given the worst greeting ever by the American public. These boys were drafted. They had no choice but to flee to Canada or to fight in that war. And it was a war that should never have been fought. I think a lot of people think that, Connie. And by the way, we have a second surprise for you. This listener, Gary Wagoner, he's on the phone with us right now, Connie. We figured... We'd connect him to you. Gary, uh, why don't you talk to Connie and just uh, pay your appreciation now all these years later. Hi, Gary. Um, oh, hi. Uh, can I call you Connie? Of course I can. Yeah, please do. Uh, <laughs> uh, not bad memory for a guy that can't remember what he had for breakfast, right? Right. <laughs> can, I, can I ask you, you saw a number of the MACV hospitals. Was the 45th Surgical in Tainin, was that the first one that you saw? I went to the MACV hospitals on every base that I visited. I went there first because a lot of the boys that were wounded couldn't come to my shows. So I would go to the MACV hospitals first before doing a show. Right. So it might have been the first, but it might not have been. Because I went, in every base, I went to a Magsy Hospital. Well, the reason why I ask is because I remember you walking out of the ward. And it was almost like you had never seen the troops wounded. The devastation. Yeah, yeah. It was almost like 
you know, oh, geez, what's going on here? And I was almost embarrassed. I remember that bringing you the book to ask you to sign. I thought, man, you know, I'm sure she doesn't want to sign it, not because she doesn't want to sign it, but just, you know, you had a whole bunch of stuff going on in your head that you had just viewed. I did a lot of signing over there. Right, <laughs> right. I, I signed thousands of autographs over there. Yeah. I always tell people, you know, I didn't do much over there. I pounded a typewriter for a year, but we did get what happened out in the field. And, uh, you know, when we heard the helicopters coming in, much like, I'm sure you've seen MASH and radar yelling incoming, um, we knew 99% of the time it was not going to be good news. Right. So, as you said, some of the things that uh, we had to unload off the helicopters was stuff that I don't think any of us, even what I call the lifers, the guys, the the 30 and 40 year old sergeants that uh, had been in the army forever. I mean, I don't think they were. It was shocking. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and to draftees that really didn't want to be there, of which I had a number of friends, it was really just something that I'm not surprised that we sent back uh, drug addicts and, in my case, alcoholics. Knock on wood, I've stopped. But, you know, people that just couldn't handle the devastation. Yes, of, uh, and PTSD was, was unknown then. Correct, correct. That hadn't been given a name yet. And all of these troops thought they were crazy. And... There, there was, there was. Uh, today we have 26 troops a day still committing suicide as a result of PTSD. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, again, I want to thank you for taking time out, especially in Tainin. We were, <laughs> uh, we were out in the boonies. There's no question about that. Yeah. The, uh, I wanted to find out what the war was all about. Yes, ma'am. And unfortunately, I asked a lot of questions. Well, un- unfortunately, you got a you got a big dose of it when you went through the uh, wards at my hospital. And I also heard that you really went out of your way when you got names and addresses and phone numbers of the guys in the wards. And then you yeah, know, I got I took down 500 names and called their families when I got home. Well, you are uh, you know words escape me. Wonderful doesn't cover it. Well, Gary, I I really appreciate you reaching out to us, sending that. Connie, it meant so much to us for you to join us for the hour. But you know, in the end, as you had said, all those records, all those sales, but that human touch that showed the real heart of Connie Francis. In the end, the real heart of America, as Americans disagreed about the war, and many good people disagreed, the the American people, well, many of them, most of them, treated our soldiers so poorly. And, Connie, you did not, and it was appreciated by our men in uniform. It's still appreciated today. And thank you to Gary. Thank you to Gary Wagner. Thank you, Gary. And thank you. And I mean this sincerely. If you're ever out in the Los Angeles area, I'd love to buy you lunch or dinner thanks Gary (laughs) and thank you Gary and we bring these kind of stories together here folks one of the great pop singers of all time 
a guy who happens to be serving in Vietnam, and the two of them meet in a faraway place and show mutual love and mutual respect for one another. Connie Francis's story, Gary Wagoner's story, a bit of the American story in the heart of one of our darkest times and darkest wars, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love bringing you stories from our very best writers, and Jonathan Rausch is an award-winning author with seven books and many more magazine credits to his name, but the book we're going to talk about today is personal. It's called The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50, and it's Jonathan's detective story about why he and so many of us fall into a funk right when we appear to have it all. And Jonathan, you start your book with the story of a man named Carl. Tell us about him. Carl is a guy in his 40s. He's objectively super successful in life. He's got a good marriage. He's got kids that are happy. He's recently switched to the job kind of thing he's always wanted to do. And yet he feels strangely unfulfilled. He comes home at night thinking, what's the matter with my life? Why am I so discontent? He started to feel like there's something wrong with him. And he, he told me he was actually starting to feel a little bit scared. He wasn't even telling his wife about it because he didn't want her to get upset. So he was holding it all in. And I heard this and when I was 54, about 10 years older. And I thought, that is my life. That is exactly what I went through. You know, you wrote that, quote, it feels kind of conceited to bring it up to my friends. They just kind of look at me and say, geez, you got it all. So there's sort of a a shame, oddly enough, in feeling this feeling of, if not depression, uh, unease, fear, at a time when most people would look at you and say, you've got it all. What do you got to complain about? Well, that's right. His subjective well-being, how good he feels about his life, and his objective well-being, the circumstances of his life have completely parted ways. And, and that, too, is what happened with me. I knew I was in trouble when I was 45. I'm a journalist, magazine writer, and I won a national magazine award, which is the equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize for the magazine business. It just doesn't get any better. And that made me feel fulfilled for like 10 days. And then these creeping ideations of, you know, I'm wasting my life. I should quit everything and go somewhere else. They, they came back. And that's when I knew what was going on was strange and irrational. I felt just the way Carl did. I haven't earned these feelings. I should be grateful. Why am I not grateful? Yep. Why am I not grateful? Let's talk about Dominic. Much of his identity was wrapped up in his work and things hadn't turned out like he expected. And yet he characterized the stage of his life as appreciative. So talk about him in contrast to Carl. Dominic is a little older than Carl, about five years when I spoke to them. They're actually very similar demographically. They're a closely matched pair. They even travel in similar social circles. 
Dominic has been where Carl was a few years ago. He felt that same dissatisfaction and restlessness and unease and sense that he was wasting his life. But by his early 50s, he senses he's begun to kind of turn around. He's he's feeling like his expectations are a little bit lower, and he's somehow feeling more appreciative of what he's got on a day-to-day basis, just you know, being with his daughter, his family. And I, at the start of my book, I juxtapose these two because in many ways, the big difference between them is actually their age. Carl is five years younger. He's at a different point in the happiness curve. Let's talk about Thomas Cole and his series of four paintings, The Voyage of Life. This is a 19th century painter who I think had stumbled upon these insights in his art long before social psychologists had come to the same conclusions we'll get to in a bit. Talk about Thomas Cole. I beheld them for the first time when I was 20 years old, and they just just stopped me short, partly because of their beauty, but partly because of the story they tell. So Cole is a landscape artist, and he sets out on a commission to do a series of paintings depicting the voyage of life, starting with childhood. And what they show is a baby, then the same young man, then middle-aged, then old age, in a boat on a river. In the front of the boat, on the prow, is an hourglass. Behind the boat is a guardian angel, in most of the paintings, out of sight of the young man in the boat. The first one shows a baby emerging from the womb into a kind of Garden of Eden, The second one shows a young man exactly the same age I was when I first saw it, about the age of 20. And he's reaching for a castle in the sky. And those are his ambitions for life, not just his ambitions for accomplishing things, but his ambitions for happiness, because he thinks if he accomplishes the things he wants to do, that that's going to be fulfilling. Well, surprise, the next painting is midlife. Rapids, dark clouds, craggy rocks, um, the tiller is knocked off the boat. He's looking overhead and, and praying for deliverance. But blocking his view of the heavens are dark clouds and, and demons. And that's Thomas Cole's portrayal of where Carl is at. What's so interesting about these is that there are no people, buildings, city, society. Nothing like that. It's a portrayal of our psychological journey years before there even was such a thing as psychologically. Cole is saying, this is how it's going to feel to be you at these different portions of your life. And it turns out he's exactly right. You know, it's interesting when you're going through that. And I I hadn't seen these paintings in at least 15 years back when I lived in D.C., And they startled me. But what I did not see in that final painting, because I had my own biases about old age, is I saw all the darkness in that fourth painting and not the light. And that was my own bias. And we're going to get to that later as well. But when you were younger, did you see the same thing? Do we see what we want to see or see what our experience allows us to see, Jonathan? I saw myself exactly in youth because I was 19 and expected great things for myself. I just didn't know what they were going to be. But I thought, you know, I knew I I had an inkling I wanted to be a writer. And I thought, if I could even just ever get one article published in a major magazine, just one, I'd feel fulfilled for the entire rest of my life. So 
that was completely accurate. It painted my life. And I also remember thinking, well, that middle-aged one, that's not going to be me. I mean, I knew it was something like that for my father, but I thought, well, you know, any good thing that happens to me, I'll be grateful for it and satisfied. So in the future painting, the future me, in middle age, the young me was not ready to see that. And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Jonathan Rausch, author of The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. This is Our American Story. our American stories and we're back with author Jonathan Rausch who's written The Happiness Curve Why Life Gets Better After 50 and we were just talking about how so many of us experience more happiness and satisfaction in our youth and then later in our lives than during midlife something that even the great 19th century painter Thomas Cole showed in his work by the way the National Gallery is in Washington D.C. his work is there Worth a trip just to see it. It's so staggering and so beautiful. The Adventures of Life. Jonathan, you were motivated to look into this topic of happiness and ultimately write this book because of your own life. It's odd to be in your mid-40s having achieved all of your important life goals but feeling down. Talk about your own journey, starting with this quote from your book. Quote, I was in the closet with my unhappiness. Well, I was, and Carl is. I think Carl said that he'd only ever told one other person how he was feeling, and it wasn't his wife. I talked to another guy who was going through the same thing, and he said that he had tried telling a friend or two, and, and then he stopped doing that because one of them gossiped about it, and he he didn't want to be a source of actual ridicule, you know, oh, Lee's going through his midlife crisis. Hey, Lee, when are you going to buy the sports car? Ha, ha, ha. Right. So the happiness curve is totally normal, natural, and healthy. It's very unpleasant if you're going through it, but it has a payoff, which we should talk about, which is what happens in our 50s, 60s, and beyonds. It's reorienting us to be less focused on ambition and achievement as a source of our personal well-being and more focused on connection and community, which comes later in life and is a much more fulfilling source of happiness. But in between, there's this nasty transition when we're disappointed in the happiness achievement has brought us and the new values haven't really arrived yet. That's a natural process, right? It's a little bit like adolescence. It's just something many people go through. I mean, a lot of people have a hard time in adolescence. So, you know, fine, we help them get through it. But we make it much worse. We do that in a few ways. And we should talk about all of them, but one of them is what you just mentioned. We make fun of this period in life, and we make people feel like middle age is supposed to be the peak of life. You know, they're masters of the universe. They're taking care of their kids and their parents, and they've got the mortgage, and they've got the high-profile career, and they're good at everything. They're supermen and superwomen. So... If people are feeling bad in this portion of life, and it does turn out to be a very vulnerable portion of life, well, they're bottling it up. They're feeling like, I can't tell anyone about this. And, you know, I'm a 
gay man, and I lived through life in a closet. And very quickly, when I started hearing people's stories, I realized this is the closet all over again. I mean, it's never going to be super easy to be gay, but having to bottle it all up, be ashamed of it, not tell anyone, go on about your life without opening up about the true you, that makes it much worse. And that's what's going on with Carl. Indeed, and I would say this about so many things in life. The more we open up and share, the more we can know that other people in the world are going through the same thing, Jonathan. Let's talk about happiness and income. Quote, all the evidence says that on average, people are no happier today than people were 50 years ago, writes Richard Laird, a prominent British economist. Yet, at the same time, average incomes doubled. This paradox is equally true for the U.S., Britain, and Japan, so economic well-being doesn't make a person happier or less happy, Jonathan? Well, it's a bit more complicated than that because poverty is immiserating. So getting out of poverty is really important. But beyond a certain point, they're diminishing returns of additional income because it turns out that once you're beyond the poverty level, you're, you're living pretty well, it's just not actually that helpful to have your fourth or fifth you know, million dollar. In fact, it can be counterproductive because of what psychologists call the hedonic treadmill, which is when you're in a race for money or status, you're always comparing yourself above you to the people who are higher than you and you're trying to catch up. But there's always going to be someone higher than you. So you become like a gerbil, um, one of those little running, running loop cycle things. The more you try to get status, the more you feel like you're not getting there. So beyond a certain point, investing and making more money or having more status turns out not to be a reliable way to increase your well-being and sometimes can make it worse. Here's the most fundamental finding of happiness economics you wrote. The factors that most determine our happiness are social and not material. Talk about that. This is, this is the core finding of research in multiple disciplines now, economics, psychology, neuroscience. Human beings are tribal animals. We're social animals. We're wired to be in groups. And the main determinant of our happiness is having trusting, loving relationships, supportive relationships, reliable relationships with the people around us. Investing in people and connections and community in a supportive way that is the opposite of the hedonic treadmill. It turns out that those that's like putting happiness in the bank. It not only makes you more satisfied with your life in the short term, it's cumulative. It's, it's not a situation where the goalposts move. Unfortunately, when we're young, it's hard to focus on those things because we're wired to be ambitious when we're young. Evolution wants us to go out and you know really impress, impress our fellow tribes, people, and get lots of status and lots of social connections and, you know, a fat Rolodex and thus lots of mating opportunities. So that means early in life, it's harder to live according to this, what we now know about happiness. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try, though. Indeed. Let's talk about Aristotle and the virtues he wrote about centuries ago relating to life. It turns out after all these centuries... He was on the mark about a lot of things. Human beings are still in the end, Jonathan, human beings. Yeah, it's funny. I wonder about Aristotle. Was he 
a creature from outer space because he got so much right. And it took really modern science to understand how right he was. Aristotle is a Greek philosopher, of course, um, 5th century BC. And he makes this important distinction that real happiness is not just transitory cheerfulness. It's a sense of fulfillment with your life, a sense of satisfaction with your life. And that, he says, comes not from pleasure, but from inculcating in yourself a virtuous life, which basically means doing things that are good for yourself and other people and making that a habit. So you don't even have to think about it that much. And all of this turns out to be exactly true, so much so that, you know, I kind of wonder, how did he know that? There's a big basic distinction between happiness in the sense of emotional feeling good right now and happiness in the sense of well-being, feeling satisfaction with your life as a whole. Everything we're talking about in this conversation is about the latter. Indeed. It's about that sense of well-being, which is much more important for life satisfaction overall um, than just your mood. You know, I don't think people can hear that often enough. The culture, Jonathan, sends so many messages directly to the contrary. Buy this, you'll be happier. Go here, you'll be happier. Travel here, you'll be happier. Love all these different people as opposed to one person, and you'll be happier. In the age of Tinder and Instagram, this is very counterintuitive. Yeah, that's the thing about Aristotle. He's been rediscovered by modern science, as has wisdom, which is another piece of Aristotle, which we should come back to. But we have, as a culture, spent the last multiple decades moving in the opposite direction. The idea behind Facebook, you know, it was supposed to be, we'll connect the world and everyone will be happier because we'll have a zillion connections instead of just, you know, these 30 or, or so key people in our lives that we mostly talk to face to face. Well, it turns out the opposite is true. It turns out what we're doing on Facebook is not connecting, it's displaying, as psychologists put it, um, which means showing off our carefully curated lifestyle homepages in which we're always happy and we're always on vacation and, and showing, you know, pictures of big smiley pictures. Or we're displaying our animosity to the other side, to groups that we hate, right. which is a way of ingratiating ourselves with our own group. So that means, you know, we're on Twitter slamming people and trolling. So it turns out once again that, that the old wisdom about this is right. There's no substitute for close connections in person, face-to-face -face with real people. And when we come back, we're to continue this terrific conversation with Jonathan Rausch, author of The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. Go to Amazon and buy this book. Again, it's The Happiness Curve. And I'll tell you, you'll feel happier about a lot of things and better. If you're going through some things, you're going to get through those things, more than likely. And these are just, well, it's just a part of life and living, these stages of life. The Happiness Curve, Jonathan Rausch, we continue our conversation after these messages here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we return with author Jonathan Rausch and his book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. Go to Amazon and buy this book. You won't put it down. You'll learn so much. Give it to a friend, too, especially if they're in their mid-30s, early 40s. Heck, give it to people in their 20s, too. They can at least get a sense of what's coming in life. Then they can get through life in a better way, in a, in a, in a, well, in a more relaxed way. Let's talk about the curve part of your life, Jonathan. We live in a society that celebrates and glamorizes youth. But on average, most people reach their highest levels of life satisfaction in their later years. Not in childhood, not in midlife, when many of us are at our professional peak. This is a fairly new discovery. Talk about it. Well, yeah, it goes back about 20, 25 years. The biggest, strangest thing I learned in writing The Happiness Curve is that midlife crisis is very often literally about nothing. And we should come back to that because that throws off a lot of people. But the most surprising thing I learned is what you just said. That other things being equal, of course, individual mileage will vary, but other things being equal, as we get older, our life satisfaction increases right through old age. We're actually programmed by evolution as we move out of our 50s and beyond to invest more in those key relationships with other human beings, to care more about community and less about personal advancement. And that plus changes in the brain, which actually make us more positive about life as we get old, actually increases contentment, even in many cases if we're ailing and sick. This is the opposite of the stereotype of aging, which is old people are crotchety, lonely, depressed. And after about age 50, you know, it's going to be a long, slow decline. And of course, that makes it worse because everyone who's unhappy at age 45 or 50 thinks, well, I'm, this, is, this is bad and this is the peak. It only gets worse. So then they get pessimistic as well as disappointed. So it's very important for people to understand that that's not true at all. The stereotype of aging is, is just plain wrong, and this is one of the most robust findings out there. Um, things get better. Emotional satisfaction gets better as you get older. You get better at regulating your emotions, experience less regret, less stress in any given situation, more positivity. Even true of what you perceive, they put people in brain scanners, and older brains react more to positivity you know, things like smiley faces and less things, less to negativity, things like frowning faces. So I tell you right about time also a lot, Jonathan. Time matters. Those were two words you wrote together. It was a sentence, and it was a big one. Talk about why you put those two words together. We imagine that aging is the passage of time in our lives is a neutral process. So, you know, it's just the clock ticking. It's the background. Or we imagine that aging is a process of slow decline because, of course, you know, our bodies deteriorate over time and then eventually we die. So those are the two models of how age affects us in life, but they're both wrong. The big finding of the last, really, it's only been nailed down in the past 10 years or so. It's really brand new stuff. Um, in multiple disciplines, is that the shape of time is U-shaped, and that's the happiness curve. The passage of time tends to reduce our life satisfaction, other things being equal, from early adulthood, you know, when we're about 20, 
to about midlife. And we'll experience typically a nadir, a bottom to this cycle at around the age of 50. It varies depending on country. And of course, individuals are different. And then time, just when we least expect it to, just when we've given up and we think, oh my God, I'm in for a lifetime of disappointment and gloom. Time turns around, it switches sides, and it goes into this reverse cycle of positive feedback where we're feeling better about life and we're positively surprised that we're feeling better because we thought, you know, we're going to decline into sadness and death. And, and those two things feed on themselves. So that's the shape of time. And that's what Thomas Cole's paintings are really about. He makes this clear. If we look hard, we see that there's an hourglass is the prominent feature of three of the paintings. So his message is, this is what time is going to do to you. And let's talk about that midlife malaise, because you said it's often about, well, like Seinfeld's show, nothing. Talk about that. Yeah. We imagine that if we're not feeling good about life, then there must be something wrong with our life something we've got to change, you know, job, marriage. In my case, it was job. When I started having this fog of disappointment that I couldn't seem to get away from, I started fantasizing about escaping, walking and quitting my job and escaping to some other whole different kind of line of work. I didn't know what. It was, it was just a fantasy, but lots of people experience that. Well, it turns out human beings are not very good at attributing the causes of our happiness and unhappiness. What I was really doing was flailing around. My rational mind was looking for a way to explain what in fact was going on just because of changes in my brain and because of my age. What I was in fact feeling, this rough, rough patch in my 40s, this was a built-in transition. Lots of people go through it. Not everybody, but lots of people. It's totally normal. But it's not about anything. It's just change. One way that we, that we have that confirms that is that the same pattern of declining happiness followed by increasing happiness for the bottom and the middle of life has turned up in chimps and orangutans. And there, you, you know pretty well it's not about anything because they don't have you know, careers and, and families and marriages and all that. So the problem is the happiness curve, age-related dissatisfaction, as, as I call it, is not really about anything. It's just something that's happening. It's like, you know, what is adolescence about? Well, you know, it's a stage, right? It's natural human development. But we make the mistake of thinking it must be about something, so we leave our marriages, we quit our job. For most people, midlife dissatisfaction, the bottom of the happiness curve, is not a crisis. It's the opposite of a crisis. It's just a long, slow slog, and we live with it and go on with our lives. It's not, it's not acute depression. It's just a big nuisance. If we misattribute it and we go out and make you know, big life mistakes based on the false idea that what we really need is to throw all the, the whole pack of cards in the air, quit our job, leave our marriage, and go off to Tahiti, well... That becomes midlife crisis. Most people don't have that, but a U-curve turns into a V-curve, this sudden sharp crash, often because we make these mistakes. So it's really important to know if you're in a midlife slump, it's probably not about you. It may not be about your life. You may need change in midlife, as at any other time of life. Change is often good, but don't be radical. 
don't be disruptive. Don't be impulsive. Impulsivity is not your friend at this stage. Plan it carefully. Talk to people. Make sure it's a progressive, sensible change for you. And when we come back, more with author Jonathan Rausch. The book is The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. And if you like what you hear here on Our American Stories, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. And we'll send you the five best stories each week. And this is a story in the end, not only about Jonathan Rausch's uh, curve, his happiness curve, and his experience at the bottom of that curve, but all of our lives. And we all know what he's talking about. I think that so many of you are nodding and thinking, aha, that's what this was all about, this journey. When we come back, more with Jonathan Rausch. And thanks always to MyPillow.com. The folks there, well, they they make the best pillows in America. And if you want some real happiness, a good night's sleep will get you there. Go to MyPillow.com and tell them, well, at least enter the promo code STORIES to get their very best specials. That's MyPillow.com. And again, my wife and I use them. We actually fight over whose pillow is whose. And we think we like each other's pillows more than our own. It's very strange. MyPillow.com. Real happiness is a good night's sleep. When we come back, more with author Jonathan Rauch. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with author Jonathan Rausch, whose own midlife unhappiness prompted him to take a deep dive into the science of happiness throughout human life. In writing his book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50, he discovered that on average, people develop higher life satisfaction later in their life, even as they're getting sick more often and can't do all the things they once did. Jonathan, in your chapter called The Paradox of Aging, we meet a 94-year-old woman named Nora who rates her life as 100% satisfied with everything. Tell us about Nora. Nora um, actually passed away since I wrote those words. She was 94, and she, I don't know if I put this in the book, but she had a cancer diagnosis at the time. And yet there she was saying it was the most fulfilling part of her life ever, even though she had some terrible losses. Her husband had died many years ago, and she had been single. Um, she'd been the caregiver for her sister who had had Alzheimer's who had died and that had been a rough patch. She was very wise and she said, these things that used to seem like they mattered so much, I'm not using her words, but she said they seem ephemeral now. People later in life feel like they no longer have anything to prove. They feel like they can focus more on the, on the most important things in life. And that's partly because their brains have changed to allow them to do that. And it's, it's very common. There's tons of evidence now, just tons, that what I saw in Nora and other people, I surveyed lots of people for my book and interviewed lots of people, that this is a, a very deep phenomenon. This is, this is really changes in our brains and values as we age that make it easier to be satisfied and easier to be wise. 
You know, you write, quote, fortunately, the depressive realism of middle age turns out to be, well, unrealistic. Life indeed gets better, much better. Again, this is not what the culture sells us. Old age is like death in the culture. Yeah, one of the reasons I wrote this book is it's all the stuff I would wish that I could have known when I was 40. And by the time I was 50, I was so pessimistic about the future because I thought at that point, you know, 10 or so years of this fog of disappointment. And part of the reason I was so gloomy about the future is what you just said. You know, the story that our society says is, well, it's all downhill from here. If I had just known that if I can just wait this thing out, not make any big mistakes, that it's got a wonderful payoff, it's a transition. It's not midlife crisis. It's, it's midlife transition to a different brain and a different value set that turn out to be more rewarding. I'm textbook. I seem to be like right from central casting. My U-curve bottomed out in my late 40s, around the time I lost my parents and actually had some major setbacks in life. And I started feeling like maybe it was turning around by the time I was 51 or 52. I'm 58 now. And of course, you know, life is life, right? There's setbacks, there are disappointments, there's anger and, and all kinds of stuff. And of course, there's politics right now. But despite all that, I also feel gradually like I'm getting more settled. All these voices and fantasies about escape and worthlessness have have pretty much gone. So that's that's the real story. Some really prominent social and behavior scientist, Jonathan, came to a pretty startling conclusion in 2011. I'm going to quote again from your book. The peak of emotional life may not occur until well into the seventh decade. And you wrote right after that, the seventh decade exclamation point. Why that exclamation point? It's so counterintuitive. It's what you just said earlier, Lee. You know, we, we just imagine that by the age of 70, much less, you know, 80, that will be in sad decline. And it's it's just not true. The emotional peak of life is much later. And you mentioned earlier that we have this idea that youth is, you know, it's a time of, of gloriousness and happiness. And, well, most of us have been through that period of life. And the reality about our 20s is that, that they're a time of extreme emotional volatility and great uncertainty. And that goes away later in life. You become much better at balancing emotions, at experiencing equanimity, meeting the world with a sense of perspective. Let's talk about the happiness curve and its purpose, because it's social, and it bends toward this thing called wisdom. Again, those ancient philosophers like Aristotle, they were onto something. Talk about Paul. His story was remarkable and universal. Paul is a guy who I met when I was on a speaking trip and he was, I was driving around with him and his story turned out to be a midlife crisis story. It does happen. He was a super motivated, high achiever, ice climber, wanted to do all the hardest routes in the world and broke both his legs trying to do it and would obsess if he wasn't, you know, out there on the ice every winter had marriage kids, and he just fell apart in his 40s. When he put himself back together, a big element is that he went out to an Indian reservation to do some teaching and saw the poverty and need out there and began to throw himself into that. And that changed his life. Well, from his perspective, he feels like 
the reservation did this to him. Really, I think the science is more like he did this to him. His brain was not receptive to doing that kind of close, social, connected work when he was younger because he was focused on personal ambition. That's how we're wired. But he became, as he aged through this crisis and beyond, he became more oriented toward helping other people and found a deeper level of satisfaction than he ever known before. And one of the things he said to me along the way was that he thought he had a better toolkit for life, which I thought was a great phrase. So I put that in my pocket and was looking at the literature on what's going on behind the happiness curve. Why would evolution want us to have this additional satisfaction later in life? And the word wisdom kept popping up. It turns out there's a science of wisdom. Wisdom is not like some folklore concept from fairy tales. It's a real thing. It's measurable. There are tests for it. There are people looking for it in brain scans. It's not the same as knowledge, expertise, skill, experience. It's certainly not the same as intelligence. It has almost zero relationship to how intelligent you are, how wise you are. But wisdom is just what Paul said. It's about having that toolkit for life. So it's wisdom is rare at any age, young or old, but we're better equipped for wisdom as we get older because wisdom is about the ability to balance competing emotions, to synthesize a lot of experience, not to fly off the handle too much, and it's especially about helping navigate complex social situations. We think that's why it exists. Tribes that have wise people tend to do better, and families that have wise people, because wise people help offer good advice about how to cope with stuff. And lastly, Jonathan, talk about faith and religious community. Many of the happiest and most satisfied among us are also people of deep faith. Does that have any relationship to the happiness curve? Faith, I think, is something largely separate. Um, the happiness curve is about the effect of time, but it's important for people to remember lots of other things affect your well-being in life. You know, for example, your health and the satisfaction you get from your job and the quality of your marriage. And yes, faith is an important element of that. So on any given day, Lee's or Jonathan's life satisfaction depends on a host of variables, and no one should think that time, the happiness curve, is the only thing going on. It's one of a lot of things going on. So by all means, faith can increase well-being, and there's a lot of documentary evidence to, to show that that's true. But it's, it's kind of a separate thing. It's, it's a good thing. It's an important thing, and I ran across it when I was doing my research. But what we need to remember is it's not the only thing going on. Your age will also affect your happiness, and it will affect your receptivity to faith and to community and stuff like the amount of and quality of volunteering that you're doing, for example, which is important in many faith communities. Indeed, and, and I'm going to end with a, a line that I think almost summarizes the book. It's just such a beautiful one. Time and aging fight happiness in midlife, then switch sides. Talk about that. That's it. It's what I it's what I just said. You know, it's time and aging are not the only thing going on. 
it's like you can walk uphill and it's harder or downhill and it's easier, but where you go depends on what direction you set and the terrain and, you know, and the distance and the weather. Lots of things go on, but it's very important to know that there is this U-shape to life and that if you're someone who is feeling that, you know, your, your midlife is a grind of disappointment and it seems like it's, it's never going to end and you don't know what to do, for a lot of people, in a lot of cases, what to do is nothing. It's not literally nothing. Reach out to other people. It's, it's better not to bottle this up. Avoid big mistakes and impulsive decisions of the time we talked about earlier. Counseling is often a good idea. These days, there's counselors know all about this, and they're not going to tell you you're depressed, you need medication, off to the, the funny farm. So, and coaching is a really good thing to do because coaching is about realigning our lives to meet our changing values. And that's especially important in middle age because that's what's really going on. So all of those things can help, but the most important thing is to understand that what's happening to you is natural, normal, healthy, nothing to be ashamed of, and it goes away. It gets better. And we're speaking with Jonathan Rausch's book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. And Jonathan, thanks for joining us. It was great to be here. Thank you. And go to Amazon.com and get The Happiness Curve. It's as good a book as I've read in a very long time. This is Lee Habib, Jonathan Rausch's story, the story of human happiness, here on Our American Stories. <laughs>